and uh, the people of Iran, uh, they are even more thirsty and hungry for the Lord during these crazy days in Iran. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, my name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. Today on the Christ and Culture podcast, we will talk with a dear friend, Nathan Rostenpour, even former employee here at the center and with another center on campus, the Center for Great Commission Studies. Nathan is a friend from Iran, born and raised in Iran. He's come to the States where he's doing ministry and studying as well. He formerly even produced the very podcast that you're listening to. Nathaniel, tell us more about what Nathan will be talking to us about. Yeah, Nathan, uh, as an individual from Iran who still, through his ministry connections, serves the secret church in Iran, Hmm. he's going to tell us a little bit about what's going on right now in the country And uh, he has a perspective like none of us do, as he still knows people and is in contact with people there in Iran. So we want to talk to him about what's going on in Iran right now. After that, we'll have another edition of our segment on my bookshelf. But first, it's time for our new segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about the new iPhone. Apple has released a brand new iPhone, the iPhone 14. Loyal iPhone users have flocked to go and pick up the newest release. Here to talk to us about it is our resident tech wizard, Eddie Wu. Eddie is a PhD student here at Southeastern. He serves with our IT office. He is also a dedicated LSU and New York Jets fan. So uh, we need to pray for Eddie uh, right now. Eddie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Nathaniel. It's really good to be here. Okay, so new iPhone's out. Tell us about it. What is new about the new iPhone? When we think about the new iPhone coming out, of course, we think about its speed. The iPhone's gotten faster. Um, We know that there's a better battery life. Uh, There are a couple of other things I've come with this one. Uh, There's something called like this crash, car crash detection, where the phone almost picks up on whether a crash has happened based on some sensors in the phone. And there's also the idea that there's a new camera and some maybe some new photo processing. So overall, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of new things, but there are some new features being advertised. All right, Eddie, you know that I'm not as tech savvy as you are, but it seems to me Apple puts out a new phone pretty frequently every few years, and it makes mm-hmm. the older models obsolete uh, again pretty frequently. Why, why, why is that? What's behind the, the ongoing release of new iPhones? Yeah, that's a really good question, Nathaniel. And you're right. It seems like every year, maybe even every half year, there's always a new product coming out, right? The iPhone 12, 13, 14. Um, In fact, for some of us, it seems as if the new phones coming out, it's becoming harder and harder for us to keep track of what's actually the newest one available. I do think there's a couple of reasons here. Uh, One would be it's marketing. Uh, for a lot of companies, they have to meet their yearly profit margins. And so releasing a new product is a really good way to get people to sort of buy in. But I also think in the American culture, we've sort of adopted this standard of new is always better. So if there's something new coming out, well, it must be better than what's already out here. So even if you just bought the newest iPhone, well, there's another one coming out 
And so we must get it because we're being told that this is the good thing for us to purchase. Eddie, our our focus this year is on human formation. All across the podcast, all the things we're doing on our website, human formation. This consistent release of new iPhones, the the desire for the new, all about that bottom dollar, as you've mentioned. How is this practice forming us as individuals? Yeah, I think it forms us because we are now used to this standard with our technology, right? And so this idea that oh, maybe we're kind of what Postman, maybe someone like Jock Alul talked about many, many years ago was, well, the, the progress is always good. We look forward to progress because we're being told progress has to be the key. And so we sort of developed this mindset where we're looking for the future and not always looking to the past because what's in the past is old. And if it's old, it's no longer good for us to use. So we develop this habit of always looking for the newest thing on the future. And maybe we don't take time to reflect as to what's happened in the past. That's a good word. Eddie, thank you for joining us today. And I hope uh, LSU and the New York Jets can uh, end the season on a strong note. Yes. Thank you, Nathaniel. I hope so as well. In recent weeks, many Iranians have been engaged in vigorous protests that have gotten the world's attention. What's behind the protest and how can we pray? Well, here to discuss this is Nathan Rostenpour. Now, for those who don't know, Nathan was the original audio engineer for this podcast. But more importantly for today's podcast, Nathan is also from Iran. And he has a unique perspective on what's going on in the country. Nathan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm reading the news. I'm seeing the videos on YouTube. Something is going on in your home country. Catch us up to speed. Why are Iranians protesting right now? This time is really different because this time the protest is against the Islamic regime itself. So we had some protests in Uh, last decades. But this time, Iranian people are saying, basically, we don't want these mullahs anymore. Enough is enough. So what sparked the protest? Tell our listeners how this started and why it mattered. Okay, one name, one name, Mahsa Amini, is the name that we are hearing a lot, especially on social media and Twitter these days. And Mahsa Amini was a 22-year-old girl that was, she was visiting Uh, her family in Tehran, the capital city of Iran, and the so-called morality police. Is that their actual title? Uh, Yes. And I know it's strange. And, and, you know, sometimes you say in 21st century morality police. And and this is is the sad reality that uh, the people of Iran are protesting against it. Uh, So they uh, arrested her just because simply she doesn't cover her hair completely. Just imagine, just just a part of her hair was out, and this morality police arrested her. So she had a head covering. She, yes. But some lock of hair was exposed. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And then they arrested this poor young girl, and beat her up. And then um, uh, they say that they um, uh, just um, hit her head uh, to somewhere. Um, and then uh, when they uh, arrested her in that special building that they have, kind of a jail, 
uh, and then she suddenly uh, had a, a heart attack. Uh, and then uh, they simply say, okay, uh, it just was an accident. She, she was frightened and had a heart attack, and now she's dead. Yeah, someone, you know, the, here's a poor young lady that's been beaten to the point she goes yes. into cardi cardiac arrest, exactly. and they say she's died of natural causes. Exactly. So this sparks protests. As you've mentioned, the Iranian people have protested the government bef before. So Correct. How, is this, how is this different? This is different, first of all, because this one uh, started by women for women. So this is the first time that the Iranian women has started a movement and a revolution in Iran. And uh, fortunately, the men are supporting them, not only the men, even children. And um, this is a sad news, but uh, up to now they have killed even 11 children, all under 18. And um, more than 200 people are, uh, are killed. What's been remarkable at the time that this is being recorded, evidently the oil workers yes. are, are joining the protest. And as I said to you before, uh, in America, oil workers are considered a, a fairly macho bunch of fellows, mm. Uh, mm. you know. And so when one thinks of how the, the protest in Iran began, you know, that this was led initially by women. Exactly. But it isn't just women. It, it seems to be the whole country seems to be joining in in this protest. Exactly. The whole country and I can say every, every layer of the society, as you said, oil workers, teachers, university pr uh, professors, doctors, like everyone. And then um, I think it was last week uh, that the, again, the morality police and also some uh, um, revolutionary guard police, they attacked Sharif University, which is, which is the top university in Iran, like Harvard University. They surrounded the university and they arrested more than 20 to 30 uh, students and they killed some of them. Just, just imagine, it's mind-blowing. Just, just imagine in our country here in the United States, imagine police uh, attack Harvard University, surround the university with crazy people, and then arrest some university students and kill some of them. And then all Iranian people were in shock. Uh, still, I can't believe it. And that university has students that they, when they usually get their bachelor's degree or master's, they, they, en they end up to Harvard or Oxford or, I mean, they are genius. Mm. And they are, they are killing these kind of people. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that those are more important than other, other people. But these I'm, are the leaders of your, the exactly, future leaders of the, the country. The future leaders, the future of country. And yeah. uh, so um, it was really bad. It was really bad. But I'm, I'm happy that now um, it's like a, a, a vacating moment for all Iranian people. And now they are, they are saying enough is enough. We don't want these Islamic uh, regime. And this time, honestly, we have more hope. Yeah. Although it's really hard. Um, yeah, there's, there's been times, I mean, we think of everything from, well, the Chinese uprising at Tiananmen Square. And it was put down brutally by a brutal regime. And what we're hearing you say is that the Iranian regime is, has not hesitated hmm. to use brutal force. I mean, exactly. We're hearing about so many people being killed, including children, for crying out loud. Yes. Um, you're not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I'm not uh -huh. asking you to, to prophesy, 
But I am asking you to maybe predict what could be some possible scenarios here. Sure. A lot of Iranian people are hoping for a big change and then have a kind of a, a temporary uh, government so that the Iranian people, uh, after these uh, Islamic regime, can can vote for a kind of a democratic um, um, kind of no religion government. This is what I'm hearing from Iran, that we don't want any any religion related to our politics. We just want a a just government that can serve our people and then freedom for uh, religion and, 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 and like freedom for everyone in our country. So this is our hope that our people can be free, Christians, Muslims, uh, all, all people in Iran. But as I said, just um, dreaming about it is kind of hard because it's been 43 years that this Islamic regime has persecuted our people. This is our hope, this is our prayer, and um, that's why we ask everyone to pray, to spread the word, and because uh, the Iranian people are asking for help because they don't have um, sometimes any hope, and they are, they're searching for, for some hope. But this time, it's kind of different because, as I said, all people in Iran, even elementary school children, are on the streets. The other day I was watching a video from elementary school, like girls in elementary school, that they they had their hijabs off and they are on the street and protesting against the government. This is completely unique. This is completely unique. So that's why we have hope. You mentioned freedom of religion and you said, you know, all religions, not just Islam, but Christianity. Uh, and that, that segues to the to one of the more exciting truths about Iran, that one of the parts of the world in which uh, the Christian faith is growing fastest is actually in Iran. And in fact, you have a remarkable testimony about how you came to faith. Tell us a little bit about your testimony. How how old were you? What -hmm. were you doing in Iran? Uh, What was your vocation whenever you came to faith? Sure. I was a university student in Tehran, Iran, when one of our family members shared with us about uh, Jesus Christ. And then um, she was talking with my mom, and my mom was a teacher. And when you are a teacher in Iran, you know a lot about Islam, and you have to know about mm-hmm. Islam more and other, than other people. So uh, in, in those conversations, I heard a lot of verses from Bible. And uh, as I was hearing to those words, the Word of God changed me. The Word of God touched me. And my brother, I, I remember the, the time that I just went into my room and I found myself on my knees talking to Jesus uh, because those words were very unique. And uh, I felt the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, after that, my, my family, uh, family and I decided to go and visit a local church. And then uh, pastors came and prayed over us and then uh, they um, connected us with um, secret house churches. So uh, I started in a secret house church. So I I was always in uh, secret house churches and never was a member of a building church. And then I grew up in secret house churches. And after a short while, because I was so passionate, I was in many different uh, trainings uh, working with organizations like uh, Open Doors International and other Christian organizations. And I got trained as a leader of those uh, house churches. And I served the Lord for 10 years in Iran and, uh, you know, making disciples, training leaders, secret leaders for 
these secret house churches. And then after uh, 10 years in 2010, because of some security issues, I had to leave my country. So I went to Turkey as a uh, Christian refugee. I knew that uh, I was not um, able to go back. So I, I went there and then uh, stayed there for two more years. And in 2013, I came here in the United States as a Christian refugee. I went back to school. I pursued um, a master's in leadership because I would always pray that, Lord, I want to continue training leaders, healthy leaders for this movement, because I know that this is an amazing movement that you have started in Iran. So use me, Lord. So I, I went to school, and then by his grace, now I'm finishing up a, a doctorate in Christian leadership, and continu- I'm continuing to training these people. Now I'm on a staff at, at Summit Church as the uh, director of church planting in Central Asia, and now we're uh, we have also 20 house churches in Iran in six different states that they are growing, and I'm so proud of them, especially in these days, in these crazy days in Iran. Uh, they uh, contacted me the other day, one of our key leaders, and he told me, Nathan, we have not canceled a single service. We are sharing the gospel. We are training our people, and uh, the people of Iran, uh, they are even more thirsty and hungry for the Lord during these crazy days in Iran. So you mentioned the secret church and you mentioned services. How, in what ways would you say the church functions uh, in a way that is similar to the American church? In other words, do they have Sunday morning worship where everybody Mm -hmm. gathers together and do hymns? Or when you say secret church, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and so... Let us know, because sure. this, you know, for, for those of us who are used to constitutional protections of religious freedom, yes. what does serving the Lord look like in mm. a, an oppressive context where everything has to be done in secret? So when you become a Christian in Iran, you have to go to a secret house church, which is normally in a small apartment. And because you are a Muslim background believer, you're not allowed to uh, the building churches, which is the churches that only uh, Armenian, Iranian, and Syrian Iranian can go to. Now, pause right there. So if I hear what you're saying, uh, that if someone was already uh, from a heritage of a Christian heritage, yes, like you mentioned the Armenian church or the Syrian church, those, were allo- those are allowed yes. in Iran, but they're not allowed to evangelize mm-hmm. those who are Muslims. Is, is exactly. It? And so so now you have broken the law by becoming a Christian. Exactly. Okay. I, yes. And, 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 and this is big. And they can arrest you. They can sentence you even to death if they want. So uh, this is serious. So uh, that's why we, we always talk about security in our groups. And, and I would like also to say that even the Assyrian and Armenian churches have a lot of limitations. And, and the government has control over them. And they are not allowed to let any Muslim background believer in their buildings. Yeah, I think this is where it's important that we make this point because the official message from the Iranian government is, look, we have freedom of religion. These, exactly. these churches are able to function, and as long as they're doing what they want to do, yes. uh, they're doing, we just leave them alone. Yes. But what you're saying is they really can't function as a local church in a New Testament sense. Exactly. Even Christian people, uh, including Armenian and Assyrian has uh, representatives in the Islamic parliament Mm. to show that, you see, this is freedom. Christians have a voice in Iran, but in reality, they're persecuting them. 
So, um, as I said, if you're a Muslim background believer like me, you have to go to a secret church. And in a secret church, we have pastors and leaders that usually have less than 10 people because of the security. You mm-hmm. don't want to have like 20, 30 young people in an apartment right. uh, and grab a lot of attention uh, for sure. And then um, if I if I want to just talk about um, a model of that house church, we start with usually a fellowship for a couple of minutes. And then exactly like our services here at church, we have worship, but for sure with a very low voice, no singing loudly. And then after that, um, a sermon or a teaching or a Bible study, it depends on the day. And then after that, they close it with, again with worship and prayer and then f- fellowship. And fellowship is is really strong in those house churches because people want to have time with each other as much as they can because sometimes it's you only have one day mm-hmm. to see other believers right. and you have to be careful about texting, uh, phone calls and everything. So you're... You're, I, I remember sometimes we wanted to, um, you know, just talk with each other. We had to uh, uh, use some secret words. For mm-hmm. instance, say a party instead of a church service. Let's go to that party together. Mm-hmm. Can I uh, borrow a dictionary, men's Bible, from you? And, you know, all these, you have to be creative. This sounds positively apocalyptic. <laughs> where, you know, you know, and in, in when you read apocalyptic literature, it's all mm-hmm. coded. Yes. You know, where, yes. where you're going to go, to go to the city on the seven hills. Well, yeah, exactly. they're going to go to Rome. You know. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, exactly the same. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, Nathan, how can, how can we pray for... Iran? How can we pray for the church in Iran? First of all, thank you so much for covering this. As I said this morning, uh, the Iranian people need the international communities be their voice. Because sometimes something happens in a country like Iran, and if we don't know about it, the government can do worse to people. And uh, even related to Christian brothers and sisters that they are right now, they are in prison in Iran. Uh, they usually say, whenever you talk about us, whenever you, you post something about us, we feel less pressure here because mm-hmm. they know that you know. So first of all, please, please talk about this in your churches, in your communities, on your social media. If you if you uh, see something about these kind of things to, and you know that you can support someone, just share it on social media. And by, by sharing these, uh, maybe sometimes people say, okay, how it's important for me. I mean, it, it, it can be for me to post something on social, social media. Right now, a lot of American celebrities and famous people are posting about this. And let me tell you this. We saw this news from the famous people in the West way earlier than CNN and, and BBC and CBS News. Hmm. And then after that, they had to cover it because now it's all over the place on social media. So I want to say let's don't underestimate the power of social media. And we, we the people, we can, we can do this. Here's an example of where social media may actually be a social good. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Nathan, uh, it's been good to talk with you. I am so glad at, uh, for the ministry that the Lord has given you to, uh, to serve your people in Iran, and we will be in prayer for you and for your people. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for your prayers and for your support. God bless you.
And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the listener favorite segment part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. And today we have Dr. Amanda O'Quinn, Associate Professor of History at Southeastern Seminary and at the College at Southeastern. Dr. O'Quinn, what is on your bookshelf? So right now on my bookshelf is, actually I've just finished this, Live Not By Lies, A Manual for Christian Dissidents by Rod Dreher. And he's known for some other books. Another best-selling book was The Benedict Option, for example. But in this particular book, he focuses on, he calls it a manual for Christian dissidents, and he focuses on how should we as Christians live in our increasingly secular, progressive, very unfriendly to biblical Christianity society. And so he does this, because I'm a Russian historian, so I love the way that he does this. He goes back and interview some dissidents from Eastern Europe. Now, a dissident is someone who just lives in opposition to the current mandate. That could be cultural. Usually it's political. In our case, right now at least, it's cultural. And so he goes back and interviews people who lived as dissidents in Eastern Europe under the Soviet regime. Um, In fact, that particular quote, live not by lies, is a quote he took from a speech by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was exiled from the Soviet Union in the 1970s and made that famous quote in his speech. So, but he talks, he does a good job, I think, of kind of interviewing some of those people, defining the terms for us in the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, he gives ways, like practical ways that we can live as dissidents. So I wanted to say, I want to just kind of flesh out a couple of those terms He talks about the difference between a totalitarian and an authoritarian society. For example, he says, to grasp the threat of totalitarianism, it's important to understand the difference between it and simple authoritarianism. Authoritarianism is what you have when the state monopolizes political control. A totalitarian state is one in which an ideology seeks to displace all prior traditions and institutions with the goal of bringing all aspects of society under control of that ideology. And then he goes on to talk about today's totalitarianism, um, and he calls it, he uses the term pink police state. So he says, we have a police state where it's not that people are showing up at your door in the middle of the night with clubs and banging on your door and demanding you do certain things, but it's an arrangement in which all people will surrender political rights in exchange for the guarantees of personal pleasures. So it gets into the idea of uh, materialistic hedonism, being able to watch what we want, eat what we want, do things on our own timetable, um, and not even admit or accept what kind of control that's coming to have over our lives and how painful it would be for us to lose it. So that's really good. And then he, he gives a clip, of course, from the speech. This was given in February of 1974, but he talks about how the system of falsity, like the false narrative of the progressives, for example, um, requires universal participation because it cannot coexist with the truth. So we all have to participate or you get canceled, right? We've heard of cancel culture, for example. Um, So I just want to read a few ways that Alexander Solzhenitsyn said a man or woman who refuses to live by lies, what do they do? He's not saying you have to, you know, get your club on fire and run out in the streets and bash windows and stuff. He's saying you're not going to be outwardly sort of overtly doing those things, but you are going to just refuse to live by the lie. For example, he says... We will not write, say, or affirm anything that distorts the truth. We will not take part in a meeting in which the discussion is forced and no one can speak the truth. We will not vote for a candidate or proposal that we consider to be dubious or unworthy. 
Um, we will walk out of an event. Now, that's kind of a little bit more out there, right? We will walk out of an event as soon as we hear the speaker utter a lie, an ideological drivel, or shameless propaganda. Now, I'm not encouraging students to walk out of classes, okay? So, you know, don't do that. There's, you don't determine that's ideological drivel and you're going to walk out of the class. He's just saying if it's clearly not true, you're not going to participate by sitting there. And so I want to just wrap up. Um, by saying, as someone who teaches history and has uh, got a you know degree in history, that's very close to my heart. But he talks about how maintaining history, that memory, historical and otherwise, is a weapon of cultural self-defense. That that's part of living as a dissident, um, maintaining memory through reading history, studying history, even talking with older relatives. A lot of that happens. The family is also a, a resistant cell for dissidents. Um, because it has to be displaced in, in order for the universal falsity to continue on. So studying our history is a way to help us learn how to not live by the lie and uh, know what the truth is. So that's Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Christ and Culture. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to seeing you next week.